Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It is Tuesday, February 15th, at least it is in the United States, 2011, and we're delighted you've joined us, and we have David Perkins with us tonight to talk about making learning whole. David, thanks so much for being a guest tonight. Well, I really appreciate the invitation, and I'm looking forward to it. So am I. The Future of Education is supported by my employer, Illuminate. The project I work on is called Learn Central. It's a free social network for educators that has Illuminate baked in. Everything is free there. We hope you'll come and take advantage of it. Coming up on the Future of Education series Thursday night, two nights from now, Kevin Kelly talks about his book, What Technology Wants. Next week, we have John C.D. Brown on again to talk about his new book, The New Culture of Learning. Uh, you can see the list. There are some new additions. Um, I've got Kevin Kelly in there twice. My apologies. On April 26th, Hugh McGuire from LibriVox is going to come on. That is new. And May 24th, Steve Denning on Radical Management. That is new as well. But lots of fun guests. And if you um, see something there, we hope you'll join us for one of those. If you've missed a futureofeducation.com show, they are all recorded. The recordings are up on the website. Just click through the previous shows. They're both in full Illuminate version and MP3 form. Uh, and there's a podcast stream if you'd like to subscribe to it. Uh, we have some really fun events coming up. Uh, Q is in March and ISTE is in June. At both of these conferences, they give me an enormous amount of latitude to hold kind of crowdsourced activities. Uh, both events have an EduBloggerCon. Uh, Q being the half day before and uh, ISTE being the full Saturday before. These are both really fun events. The, the all day in Philadelphia will, will be again a large group of people. It's always a blast. Uh, both conferences also have a bloggers cafe and uh, an unplugged series where anybody can sign up to present and those presentations are streamed out through Illuminate. So if you're coming to either of those conferences, hope you'll look those websites up. If this is your first time in Illuminate, it is a participative environment. Uh, the first thing I'm going to recommend that you do is to go up to Tools, I'm sorry, View Layout and switch to the Wide Layout. It'll make it a lot easier to see the chat. Now tonight I'm in a hotel room on a netbook on a Verizon broadband connection. Uh, and so if there's somebody in the chat uh, who wants to capture questions, if I miss them, I uh, would love that support and help. I'll do the best that I can. But if for some reason I miss one and you've noticed that it was there, please let me know. Uh, there are a variety of ways that you can indicate your um, your interest or approval in something that's being said. There are emoticons at the bottom of the participant window. There's also a hand with a large green arrow. That's to raise your hand and actually ask a question. Uh, with the microphone, you're also welcome to put questions in the chat. Now we're going to give you your first chance to participate by letting us know where you're you're coming in from. So look for the wand with the red star at the end. Click on that. It's to the left of the map. Click on that and then click on the map. So we see New Zealand, Mexico, Canada, United States, China. Feel free to shout out in the chat as well. It's often fun to know the time and the temperature. And I can't tell where you are in Europe there, but those look like they're Italy, maybe? Bermuda. Aren't we all jealous? Oh, S Serbia, how fun. <clears throat> anyway, wherever you're participating from, we're sure glad to have you here tonight. And if you're listening to the recording, thanks so much for joining us for that. So David, the first thing I have to say about the book is that any book with a quote from Gary Steger on the back, I'm going to read. Okay, thank you. <laughs> How well do you know Gary? Not very well, really. <laughs> okay, that's very funny, because Gary has a reputation for being contentious. I, I actually was with him today. I, I think he <laughs> has one of the clearest voices in the educational world, but he often ruffles feathers. Um, uh, but I did really appreciate actually seeing the quote on the back of the book, and, it, and uh, uh, as, as well as the quote from Linda Darling-Hammond, uh, who's been on the show, and, um, uh, and felt that the praise was well-deserved. I, I just loved the book. Thank you. It was fun to write. I can imagine. Um, 
would you tell us a little bit about your own background and uh, maybe sort of what's brought you to this book? Well, my own background is kind of weird. Way back, uh, I was a mathematics major at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. And in fact, my degrees are in mathematics. But I slid over into education and got excited about the way people think and the way they learn and the way they learn for understanding. And so over the years, I've thought about that and written about it and done some research. And I suppose making learning whole is a kind of a testament to where I've come to. Well, uh, you've written some other books. Well, one that I bought that I haven't, I was, uh, I thought I was going to have more time, but I didn't. It's King Arthur's Round Table. Um, Right. What's the what's the core story of that book? The core story of that book actually concerns organizations, including schools. And basically it says we can think of organizations, groups, teams, uh, corporations, government agencies, whatever. We can think of them as intelligent or not so intelligent. And we can say a lot about what makes an organization smart or not so smart. So there's a bunch of ideas in there from research and experience about uh, what makes an organization smart and how to help it get that way. That's the big idea. And the round table metaphor, of course, comes from the King Arthur stories, where King Arthur, instead of just telling everybody what to do, created this round table where all the knights could engage with one another and figure things out. Well, I read enough of it to, to remember that we, we're not quite sure exactly how much of that is myth and how much of it is reality. Yeah, it's but probably I was struck, myth. <laughs> well, I was struck by the theme of conversation and the degree to which uh, a lot of the new social media do really facilitate conversation. And I know in, in Making Learning Whole, you, you, um, you know, kind of point out the degree to which these uh, ideas are not dependent on technology. But have you noticed that same uh, capability that social media has to involve more people in conversation? Oh, yes, absolutely. I use it a lot myself. And uh, in fact, another project of mine and other colleagues called Wide World really leverages the web for of educator learning, teachers and school leaders. And we use small group conversations mediated on the web and uh, are serving several thousand educators per year. So I actually think that the emergence of really strong contemporary communications technologies is very exciting for education and very exciting for society in general. Yes, all of us who've been glued to our televisions for the last three weeks would probably agree. So Yeah, really, that's pretty exciting. It's amazing. I think what's really interesting to me about the Egypt story and, and the rest of the sort of democratization movement in, in the Arab world is how much more there will be to have to do and how deeply that conversation about governance uh, is going to have to be have to, how deep that's going to have to be, and uh, looking at say Eastern Europe and recognizing that this is just the first step in a much larger story that should be intriguing to all of us. It should be, and uh, of course people are saying, and rightly I think, looking back at uh, other events in recent history, it's very hard to say right now just what's going to happen. Things could shoot off in all sorts of directions. Some of them which would be very healthy and visionary, some of them not so much. So it's an exciting time to track how things unfold. Well, I agree. OK, so the basic idea of making learning whole is that, and I'm quoting from you, maybe learning most things should be more like learning how to play baseball. So this is, this is yeah. a metaphor <laughs> for learning, or learning by holes. And the contrast is with schoolish learning. So you couch this as a story or a narrative. The competing narratives, at least sort of nationally in the US, seem to be that 
education is broken and it gets fixed in a certain way. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about how your story plays out? Well, the inspiration, I suppose, for the book comes from early learning experiences, like learning how to play baseball, where you basically engage in some version of the whole activity. And uh, it's not just baseball. We all have experiences in different sports. We have experiences in the arts. This is very commonplace in the arts. You know, you don't begin drawing with exercises. You begin drawing by doing whole drawings of some sort. Maybe they're kind of primitive. Maybe they're not very uh, accurate, or they don't include a lot of detail. They don't include good proportions. But it's a whole enterprise. Here's my mom at the kitchen table. It's something like that. Her, here are me and my friends in the backyard. Uh, maybe it's a picture of them playing baseball. So a lot of learning outside the context of schooling. In fact, I'd say typically learning outside of the context of schooling gets both arms around whatever's being learned and carries through even in a kind of a rough, crude way, a whole version. Uh, and uh, I think that says a lot about the nature of learning and the nature of people and what plays well. So from that came the idea of making learning call and a collection of principles and so on. I guess what immediately intrigued me about the book was You've given us kind of a framework for thinking and talking about it. But, uh, and I, I think you'll understand, you'll appreciate the context within which I make this remark. I, it's not new information. I think you've done a really great job of, of helping us see things in a kind of cohesive whole. But haven't a lot of schools or a lot of educators done a good job with these principles? And, uh, and why is it so hard for us to to kind of understand that. Uh, you know, I think you're absolutely right. And I would never say, oh, here are seven new principles that nobody ever heard of. And here are examples from very rare circumstances that nobody has ever heard of. You see a lot of this in good teaching. You see, let's say, teachers of history saying, you know, our job here is not so much to learn the facts, but to learn how to think historically, and to learn how to look at complex events and make sense of them and make connections to contemporary events. Well, that's learning by holes. That's making learning whole. Or you see math teachers uh, now and again saying, let's do a little bit of project-based learning. Let's take a complex problem and use the math we know and see if we can make some sense out of it. Maybe it has to do with traffic flows in our community or something like that. Or maybe it has to do with our energy supplies in our community. Many teachers do a lot of that. And that is making learning whole. So I'm very interested in um, kind of why that ends up not being the larger compelling story for us in education. Again, I, I think you, I loved the book, and I love the, the way you kind of cohesively bring it together. But it feels as though, uh, nationally, uh, the story is sort of a more simplified kind of a, uh, we'll create a perfect system at the top, and we'll push it down. And it seems to me that uh, learning by holes is much more dynamic and accepts sort of the sense of imperfection and uh, working on it. Um, do you have some idea of why that's so hard for us to see at a, at a broader, at a higher level? Well, I have some notions about it. Um, the story goes something like this. Learning many things is hard. It's complicated. Learning baseball is hard. It's a complicated game, and it's a challenging game from a skills standpoint. Uh, and a lot of school content is hard. So as educators, we always face the problem of learning something complicated. So how do we help our students who may be five years old or eight years old or 12 years old, how do we help them 
learn in the face of complexity? Well, the trap here is that there are a couple of nice answers that are a little too easy. They're very tempting, but they're a little too easy. One answer is let's break whatever it is into elements and let's teach all the elements and practice them up and then later on we'll put together the whole thing. Now that's kind of like saying you want to learn how to play baseball? Okay, let's spend a few weeks on batting practice and a few weeks on throwing practice and a few weeks on running practice. Now let's put them together and a month later or two months later or three months later finally we'll play a game of baseball. Nobody would think that made sense for baseball. Nobody would think it made sense for learning to draw or paint. But a lot of school learning is organized just that way. Now, if you don't think about it too hard, it's a pretty plausible theory. Let's get good at the parts and put them together. Uh, but it doesn't actually work all that well because the parts don't make sense taken separately. Um, the other very common theory about how to help our students approach something complicated is to say first we learn about it and then later on we learn to do it. So first we learn about history. Here's the information. Here's the facts. Here's the stories. Later on we might learn how to make historical interpretations or be critical about historical evidence or something like that. But for most things this really doesn't work very well either because it's too detached from the real thing. I mean, again, imagine a baseball scenario where we spent a couple of weeks learning the rules of baseball before we did anything. Nobody would think that made sense for baseball. Or imagine an art course where we don't draw for two or three weeks. We're learning uh, definitions of line and plane and shape and form and color and so forth. And two or three weeks later, we start to draw. That wouldn't make sense to anybody if we're talking about art. But oddly enough, it does seem to make sense for, say, learning history or social studies, some things in literature and so forth. Well, the bottom line is that these ideas about learning piece by piece and about learning about a topic rather than learning to do it, they do superficially deal with the problem of complexity. Kids can do that kind of thing and you can support them and lead them through it. The catch is they aren't really learning what we want them to learn. They're learning something else. They're learning a substitute task that we as teachers often find easier to manage and that often yields superficial success, but it's not what we really want them to learn. On top of that, it's boring. So I'm going to make a bad combination. <laughs> Sorry, I talked over no, you. That's it. That's it. That's 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 why I think this is a kind of a trap. Learning by elements and uh, learning about. It's very. Uh, uh, I'll use the word cute, although that may not be fair, but you do create coin two terms for this elementitis and aboutitis and I have a confession to make which is uh, I've often been called on to coach soccer for my daughter's soccer teams because of a lack of coaches and I don't know that much about soccer and what was so intriguing to me in reading the book was realizing I did that as a substitute for not really knowing what I was doing I did drills that was kind of my way of coping with the fact that I didn't really know uh, what I should be doing. But that might not be bad because in that context uh, the kids you're working well with already have a concept of the whole game and already do some playing of the whole game. You know there's not a thing wrong with drill and practice if it's positioned so that it's meaningful. Hey, I believe in practice too. I don't think there's anything wrong with practicing the moves in baseball. There's not a thing wrong with practicing arithmetic operations or components of English grammar or the grammar of any other language, providing it sits in the context of the whole game, providing the whole game is on the table at the same time, providing 
kids are getting some experience with it so they see how things fit together. So don't beat yourself up on that one. I think you're giving me more credit than I deserve. But I think you're right as well. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so you're, you, you, there are seven, right? Am I right? Seven points, seven yeah. principles. The yeah. first is playing the whole game. I will tell you that I laughed out loud at the balloon bungee jumping description. Uh, can you put that within the context of playing the whole game? Well, that's a quite well-known uh, educational example. I bet you can Google it. Uh, it's probably online, although I've had a downloaded copy for years. It's nothing that came out of my work. It's been around for a while. But uh, there is a brief documentary of a teacher teaching about linear equations, a really scary technical topic in algebra. And basically, she engages her students in a mini project where they divide into teams and use linear equations to predict how far a balloon, a water-filled balloon, will drop from the top of the school building on long elastic bands. And, uh, the winning team is the one who gets their balloon closest to the ground without it hitting the ground and breaking. So it's a sort of a fun project-like activity, very holistic. They are playing a game, literally a game. But wow, it's a game that actually uses their algebra. And they're energized. That's the second principle, make the game worth playing. And there's a focus on the particularly hard parts of the algebra that come up naturally in the context of doing this. You asked earlier, um, Steve, don't a lot of teachers do this? Well, yeah, she was, <laughs> for example. Teachers do this kind of thing all the time. So I often use that example. And I say, it has nothing to do with me. But here's an example of what a teacher did in this spirit. The piece that I loved and, about uh, it. People love oh, it. Yeah. Well, I loved it. And the piece I loved the most about it was the students who would position themselves down on the ground, lying down, to see if the calculations were correct, right? And if they, if the balloon came down and yeah. soaked them, then they, they knew their calculations were off. Absolutely. Absolutely. OK, so you, you talk uh, about junior versions of games. Right, and I thought that was a particularly sort of powerful um, way of of really making sure that this worked. Right. Um, we talked before about helping kids with complexity, with complex stuff like, say, fractions arithmetic. <laughs> well, it's all well and good for me to gripe about teaching by elements and about teaching about as kind of substitutes, as not very good ways, really, to help kids learn in the face of complexity. But anybody might say, OK, Perkins, what else can we do? Well, it's a beautiful thing that there is a kind of an answer. And that is that you want to engage people in junior versions of the activity, not a full-fledged whole game, but a junior version of the whole game. like. When, as a kid, I started to play baseball, you know, I certainly didn't play nine inning games. We almost never had a full team. Sometimes we didn't bother to keep score. But what we were doing had the recognizable shape of baseball. Same thing with when kids start to draw. You know, they're not Rembrandt. But what they're doing is recognizably, recognizably a whole enterprise of drawing something. Well, you can say the same thing about learning in math, learning in history, learning in literature, and so forth, if you organize it the right way. There's always a junior version. And the trick is to find an accessible junior version so kids can get their arms around the whole experience and see how things fit together. And as that develops, one can get to work on practicing those elements. That's fine. So you talk about uh, threshold experiences. And uh, you know, sort of the immediate and obvious connection is with the, you know, sort of the current discussion about gaming and how game creators, electronic computer game creators, do such a good job of creating those, that scaffolding and the threshold experiences. 
do you find that as well, or how do you feel about that line of thought related to um, game development? Um, I think that that's absolutely true, and it's a strong analog, and that's one of the things that makes uh, digital games, and for that matter, any game, engaging from the outset, that you can get into it at a very junior level. Like the first time, uh, are you a bridge player, for instance? I'm not, but I read the story, so go ahead. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm not much of a bridge player either, <laughs> but uh, uh, you know, the first time you play bridge, it's a mess. <laughs> you don't know what the hell you're doing. But you sort of muddle along, and the people around the table help you to muddle along. And you get through or partway through some version of it. Well, that's exciting. That's a way to get into something. Maybe you look at the rules beforehand, but you don't spend two weeks looking at the rules. You get into it. That's what I think we need to do. We need to help kids get into reasonably whole junior versions of things early so that they become meaningful. Now, that's kind of a sweeping generalization. You know, there's more to it than that. But uh, that's the big idea. We don't know that enough. Well, so if, if I combine the first principle with the seventh, the play the whole game and learn the game of learning, I'm kind of intrigued with what I would call sort of almost this generative or transparent role of the teacher, which is in showing the whole game, in some ways you're sort of exposing learning at a more kind of core level in the way that you describe, you know, if you're going to be a swimmer or you're going to play baseball, you have a sense of what the game is. So as the educator kind of describes the game to the students, aren't they in some ways kind of opening up uh, this, this sort of brilliant world of uh, learning how to learn by understanding that that's what's taking place? I sure hope so. We hear a lot today about 21st century learning and 21st century skills and so on. Uh, as it looks to me, the heart of that is learning to learn. Boy, if there's one thing we're going to have to do over and over again, and our children and their children are going to have to learn, do over and over again, it's learn. Learn in the face of novelty, a changing world, new contexts, new roles, new professions, and so forth and so on. So I think that a fundamental challenge for education today is to help kids become self-directed learners, help them get interested in learning, and help them to manage learning well. That's why this little list of principles here ends with learn the game of learning. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to propose something. And you're either going to like it, or you're going to have a really good reason to disagree with me. And either way, I think we'll learn. The, the missing chapter for me was, in this metaphor, was the role of the coach. And where I really noticed it was when you kind of switched the metaphor to the driver's seat, you know, putting the student in the driver's seat. And I kind of wanted to raise my hand in the middle of the book and say, what if you call that becoming a student coach or sort of learning the, the roles that the coach or teacher plays? Did you purposely not want to use the coach idea? Or was it something that I've, that I've just kind of botched up? You mean uh, around number seven or all the way through? I think all the way through, because it occurred to me that the, the sort of the obvious comparison uh, with the baseball metaphor was the teacher as coach. And I thought, well, maybe you purposely didn't do that because you didn't like some aspects of that comparison. You know, I do like the comparison. And as we speak, I'm embarrassed to say I don't remember how much I use the coaching metaphor. <laughs> it just slips away from me. It was certainly on my mind. Maybe I ended up not doing it very much, but it, was, it doesn't mean anything. I certainly think of the relationship between teacher and learners as very often a coaching relationship. I absolutely buy into that. Well, and it brought now, up... Go that ahead. means after the session, I'm going to do a word search to see if I actually used it much. I just don't remember. <laughs> I think you, I actually looked in the index, and I think you do mention coaching. 
but in part it was because I had read, I'm looking at the index right now to see. No, it's actually not in the index. I think what was, it's because I had interviewed uh, Dan Coyle about the talent code, and we've talked to Kathleen Cushman, uh, you know, about deliberate practice. And, and so I kind of had that on my brain. But this, but when I got to the section about putting the student in the driver's seat, I was trying to think of how you could bring that into the baseball metaphor. And my thought was, we don't in in school sports. I don't think we do a very good job of bringing students into the coaching role. And that's something I wish we would do, because it would lead to sort of more self uh, reliance and self initiative in organized sports. Mm -hmm. And that was the the connection that I have made. Well, if you think about it, and I owe well, you with the miracle of modern technology, the miracle of tech modern technology, I've pulled up a copy, and I can tell you that there are 24 uses of the word coach in the book. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so, let, so let's talk about some of the other. We're obviously not going to have time to get through all seven. But there were definitely some other uh, principles that really, um, you know, struck me. Um, you talk about making the game worth playing, and I was reminded with my own children of how, um, you know, I have a daughter who just loves the standard kind of drills. She, you know, she's very mm -hmm. much wants to know exactly what the problem set is due, and she works on it because she she can accomplish that, and she feels very confident. Have we depended too much on those kinds of students, and has that resulted in our um, creating activities that that satisfy that certain kind of student but leave others way behind because there isn't the larger game that's worth playing? I think so. Uh, not that that isn't great. I think it's great for people who can tune into that, that they do well at it. But it's a kind of a a special affinity. I mean, I was probably one of those students, too. I was good at those little tasks. I could get into them, you know, and feel good about doing well. But it's a certain turn of mind that can be happy just with that. Whereas, if you take a big picture approach to uh, learning math or learning history or whatever, it's a lot easier for a wider range of learners to get really engaged, I think. Another section is um, learning from the team. And I thought this was really interesting. And there's a reference in the chat right now to Sugata Mitra. And I thought of that as well, the hole in the wall experience. But I think that you make a pretty cogent argument in the book that this is more than just completely self-directed learning, that there's something very important that has to take place in creating these uh, learning experiences. I'm certainly a big believer in learning and interaction with others. In fact, I think I point out in the chapter, but I got it from other people. A lot of schooling is very odd in that you expect students to do things mostly by themselves. If you think across our lives, our family lives, our professional lives, uh, what happens on the playground, uh, politics, industry, human beings are not solitary performers. Almost everything we do is done in interaction, collaboration, and sometimes competition with others. It's not our nature. If you f think back, in fact, to what paleontologists understand, we began as hunter-gatherer bands. Emphasis on the band. Not solo, not soloists out there chasing down the antelope, but groups coordinating, seeking. Well, um, so the isolation of learners in many school settings is really unfortunate. And I might add the isolation of teachers in many school settings. Yeah, that, of course, that immediately occurred to me, as, as in much in the book seemed to live at sort of two parallel levels. 
you know, both for the student as learner and the educator as learner, but specifically the kind Absolutely. of the kind of informal peer learning, the on-demand, uh, what I care about learning that's taking place in social networking and education seems to me to be an enormous opportunity for individual educators. I'm totally with you, and almost all the work that I and my colleagues do with schools emphasizes teams, teacher teams, collegiality, networking, and so on and so forth. It's very powerful. So um, if, if we do see the book sort of existing at that level, um, you know, both for basically for learning and that it can apply at, at different levels. Um, I was kind of intrigued when I thought about some of the school examples that I've seen where um, there's, a, there's a Texas language program where the upper class students create the um, videos for language learning for the first year students. And mm -hmm. wondered if you've seen kind of comparable uh, um, professional development activities taking place uh, that you felt were were healthy in that same kind of regard. Um, well, I, I've seen quite a bit here and there of various sorts. I mean, absolutely, one kind of professional development, for instance, just to pick up on your example, certainly involves teachers working with students to help them in turn to teach other students, typically other students at earlier grade levels. Uh, I think the unexpected thing about those configurations is that everybody learns. The youngest students learn from the older students, but the older students who are putting things together learn the, the subject matter better because they have to organize it for teaching. And they learn something about teaching, too. And the teacher, having to coordinate all this, learns from that. Uh, I suppose this is a kind of a special case of learning from the team, only the team, in this case, is partly across age uh, and adult-youngster combination. Very cool. Very cool. So that's been done quite a bit here and there, and it's very generative. That's just one example. There are a lot of examples. Uh, a lot of what is done in this spirit travels under some familiar names, like problem-based learning, project-based learning, uh, community service learning, studio learning, um, case-based learning. Those kinds of labels don't always hit all seven principles, but back to baseball, they're in the ballpark. So are there principles that you've thought about or discussed that relate to how you create and cultivate an environment where this kind Hello? of teaching and learning takes place, meaning at an organizational level? at an organizational level. Uh, my colleagues and I have some processes that we typically use. Uh, I, besides being at the Graduate School of Education, uh, for many, many years, I have been part of and helped to run a group called Project Zero here. And we do a lot of work with schools. So for instance, a typical process is that when we start to work with a school around something, we start with small groups, and not very many small groups. We start with maybe one or two groups of about seven teachers who are particularly interested. We get them going on some things. They meet with some regularity. They talk about their practice. They use structured conversational protocols so that the conversation doesn't ramble too much. But there's also a no secrets principle. Everybody in the school knows what's going on. There's some kind of an introduction. Uh, there's also an open door policy. Anybody in the school is welcome to walk into one of these meetings and just participate, uh, one of the little group meetings. There's also a try it very small scale policy, kind of like a junior version. If a teacher just wants to try a little bit but not really join one of these groups, uh, we help them try a little bit. 
So you start small. You start with what industry would call the early adopters. Uh, you support people. You build energy. You allow sort of peripheral partial participation. And you grow outward from there. Something like that helps to create a culture of interest and commitment and helps to avoid creating antagonistic groups. One thing that sometimes happens in processes of school change is that there's sort of a select group who signs up. And there are very sharp boundaries around that group. Here are the people who are doing it. All of the rest of the professionals in the school aren't doing it. Maybe they'll get to do it later. But they aren't now categorically, and they don't find out much about it. Well, this tends to create a social polarization in the school. And the same might be said for other organizations, too. And that social polarization tends to defeat the initiative uh, in a couple of years. The other mistake, in our view, is to try to get almost everybody to participate from the beginning. Because then people feel coerced. And they react negatively. And because it's very hard to get a large number of people up to speed at the same time. So I don't know. You sort of open Pandora's box by asking that question. It's a complicated business. But those are some of the lessons of experience as I see them. Um, In my own mind, I'm now trying to reframe the seven principles as they would relate to helping those educators feel the same kind of sense of knowing the game and working on the hard parts and all of the same principles, but just moved up a level. Absolutely. Uh, so let me run through them. Play the whole game. What does that mean? for a teacher adopting a new practice. Actually, try out a junior version of that whole game in your classroom. See how it goes. Make it better. Try it again. Make the game worth playing. Use this new practice, whatever it is, for something you think is important, for an area you particularly want to push in your craft. Principle three, work on the hard parts. OK, try it a couple of times. Find out what's tricky. And then think about those particular components and find ways to improve them. Principle four, play out of town. This means take the practice into areas that aren't so familiar after you've established a beachhead so that you learn how the practice works, not just in the easiest starting points, but areas that are a little trickier. Principle five, reveal the hidden game. Try to look underneath the practice. What are its basic principles? What does it take for granted? What might be challenged, and so forth? Principle six, very important for teachers as for youngsters, learn from the team and the other teams. Ideally, all of this should take place with in a collegial context, where teachers are in touch with one another, where they're meeting in small groups, for instance, where they help to debug one another's practice, where more than one teacher is trying the same practice so they can exchange ideas about it. Sometimes they observe one another. And of course, number seven, learn the game of learning. As teachers are doing all this, they are learning something about their own learning as professionals, how to mobilize ideas, try them out, develop them, and eventually make them part of repertoire. So something like that would be a level up application of the uh, seven ideas. And in fact, these seven ideas actually apply very well to other learning contexts altogether outside of school. Um, let's say corporate learning. They apply perfectly well. They're really universals of the nature of learning. 
I like to think of them that way anyway. Well, I love the kind of recursive element or the generative nature here of what you've just done. Um, we're we're going to move to Q&A, but before we do so, I, I, I want to thank you for um, uh, for what I felt was like very thoughtful humility in the book. You talk about the fact that metaphors are like oriental rugs, that they can show complexity, but some things kind of get swept underneath them. Um, and also, yeah. that, that you know, don't read the book too carefully. Don't feel like you have to do everything here. I feel like those were both very thoughtful messages to the reader. So we're going. I hope so. I felt like they were. We're going to move to Q&A. If you have a question for David that you've asked in the chat, I'm sorry, I'm on limited computing power here, so I probably haven't seen it. But you're welcome to post it again in the chat. Or you can use the hand with the green up arrow at the bottom of your participant window. You can click on that, raise your hand, and we'll give you the microphone. Um, you published the book in 2009. Have there been any kind of larger thoughts that you would include if you were going to revise it at this point? Uh, I think the right answer to that is that I am developing more ideas about a particular theme in the book. Here and there it talks about understanding supplied scope, and it talks about choice of content, and what are powerful learnings for the 21st century. Well, I'm in the process of writing another book about that, which you could take as finding its origins in making Learning Hall. And uh, basically, I'm very concerned that today, youngsters in school be learning important, meaningful things for the lives they are likely to live. And I think a great deal of what we typically teach actually isn't very meaningful for the lives today's learners are likely to live. So I'm working on that. Um, Wen Hao Chuang. I do see some questions. I do see one question. Here, so. so team teaching seems to be the trend. What are some of the challenges with team teaching in the context of K-12, though? Um, well, I really hate to say so, but as I have had little conversations around the United States at any rate, the biggest challenge is economics. <laughs> team teaching means more than one teacher typically handling the same class or spending a lot of time coordinating. And as we know, education is kind of strapped for money. And there are a lot of settings where the administration just, want, just does not want to pay for it. And I think that's a shame. And one reason there is this economic problem is because in many settings there is a fixation on small class sizes. Actually, if you organize the learning right, small class sizes are not so critical. You can get very good learning in relatively large classes. So I would like to see more team teaching with somewhat larger classes, and I think students would benefit. And I think teachers would benefit from the interaction and the enrichment of exchanging ideas. So Kat Stevens says, hi, David, a question. I heard Deb Masters speak last night, and she was saying that teachers are a little overwhelmed with the flood of educational initiatives, research, and emerging ideas at present. What would you say about that? And intriguingly, I think you actually addressed that personally in the book. Uh, I would say that's true, and I would say that's been the case for my entire career. There's nothing new about that. There are always waves of reform and innovation, such as the era of the new math. This is a part of the educational life and the educational environment. In a way, it's a problem for school leadership, because the smart school leader recognizes this and works so that there aren't too many moving parts at the same time. It's simply a mistake in school settings to have two dozen initiatives going on at the same time. But many schools I have heard about or visited or uh, talked over with their principals have exactly this problem. There's too many things going on. 
I would even say if you're going to add attention, say, to making learning whole to the dozen things you're already doing, don't. I think making learning whole has some good ideas, but making it one more thing on top of a dozen others is not going to help. And you give advice in the book. So I totally sympathize. I totally sympathize. You do give advice in the book if you're going to kind of start with making learning whole, that you start with playing the whole game and then um, I'm thinking make the game worth playing and learn the game of learning. Is that sort of the order you give people? Uh, certainly with one and two. I don't remember what I said about seven, but <laughs> to be honest, but the basic idea is for making learning whole, just as for any topic, you really want to start with the junior version. You want to make it easy for yourself to get into it. And so I warn against trying to do everything at once. Mary JJ asks, can you help me connect your earlier core thinking routines work with your current work? Um, Thinking routines come out of an another, another initiative we've developed that's called visible thinking. And in fact, visible thinking is talked about a couple of times in making learning whole. What's the connection? The connection is that these thinking routines are good ways to think about almost anything, like an issue in history or like analyzing a work of literature, or like solving a math problem. So these thinking routines are tools for playing the whole game. They aren't the whole game in themselves, but they're good tools. Um, so that's the connection I see. Neil Stevenson says, it seems as though deep background knowledge is needed to help design the right versions of the game. How do you recommend teachers go about finding the games how important in is background knowledge by the teacher? Uh, I, I do think it's pretty important. And research shows that pretty good background knowledge in the discipline in question varies drastically across the disciplines. So for instance, elementary school teachers are less likely to have a good sense of this for, for instance, math than they are for history or literature. Now, it depends. There's a great deal of variation, of course. Uh, but uh, that's the trend of the research. So what that means is that where you don't quite have the background knowledge, you maybe need to get some more of it. The good news, I think, is that your understanding of a discipline does not have to be terribly deep. Let me go back to baseball. Was my father, who taught me to play baseball, a champion baseball player? No, of course not. He was a hack. But he knew enough. He had enough of a field. He had enough skills to teach me. You don't have to be a master. You just have to be ahead of the game. So I think that's very important. Uh, it would be daunting if we all had to be experts in every discipline that we teach. We don't. We just have to be ahead of the game. So I find that reassuring and something to work on. So Diana from Science Leadership Academy asks, hang on, I'm switching screens. What teacher prep programs are getting this learning how to learn approach right? Oh, I really wish I could answer that question. I know hardly anything about teacher preparation programs. Almost all my personal work is in-service work. Uh, there is a very small scale teacher preparation program at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, but it's not the main enterprise there. That, I think, works out pretty well, but I really can't speak to that question. So uh, if I've missed the question, I hope you'll post it again in the chat. We have a couple more minutes left with David. Um, 
you talk about in the book the yes buts, and it sounds like one of the comments you've gotten back is the competitive characteristics of the sports metaphor. Um, do you want to talk about that at all? Uh, sure. Um, there's some reason, I think, to believe that a little bit of competition here and there in the learning process is or can be a good thing. But I am cautious about learning processes that are heavily competitive. I don't think that serves us well. Um, yes, it tends to be part of the play the whole game metaphor. We think of games as competitive. But I view that as a kind of an imperfection in the metaphor. No metaphor is perfect. Take any metaphor. You can always pick holes. You can always say there are aspects of it that don't play as well as you would like. So actually, I looked at a lot of metaphors that might help make this case. And the game metaphor stepped forward as the best of a lot. So I don't buy into the competitive side of it. But uh, I think that the language and the inspirational and clarity, inspirational and, and clear quality of it plays a lot better metaphorically than it does just stated bald. I think someplace in the book, I actually I go through what the principles would sound like phrased in a non-metaphoric way. Like, play the whole game, we could say instead, learners engage in relatively holistic versions of the learning, uh, of the learning goal. Isn't that boring? <laughs> Good grief. Uh, it's the same down the I'm going to defend the metaphor so, a little because I think in a team sport there is an enormous amount of cooperation that in many ways oh, yes. supersedes the competitive. I think that's true. And also, uh, the game does not necessarily have to be a competitive game. There are non-competitive games. Crossword puzzles, for instance. Cliff climbing, for instance. So we're about to close. Um, I'm, I want to ask you about your own personal vision of what education exists for. And I think the, the story that we're hearing a lot right now is to prepare students for business. Uh, that, that in order for our economy to thrive, we need learners. Have, have we lost something in that story that is a little bit more core to learning that should come before the business? Or is there a, do you have a nuanced description that you feel kind of encompasses what learning should be about? I certainly don't think it should be solely about preparing people for business. You know, this is a very almost cliche thing to say, but I think it should be preparing learners for life. Life is more than business. So a lot of times I think of the dimensions of our lives. I think of the personal dimension of our lives. Human relations, families, uh, friendships. I think of the civic dimension of our lives, participation in our, in our communities, our local community, our nations, the world. And I think of the professional dimensions of our lives. Uh, the job we have, the career we build, the career we switch to. All of those are important fronts. So to me, some of the discourse about the business world is a kind of fixation. It's important, but it's too narrow. What about the personal life? What about the aesthetic life, one's involvement in art and music and so on? Not professional involvement, but just as a participant and somebody who enjoys. We need a more multidimensional conception of what learning is for. David, thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. I'm clapping for you. That's the clapping hand at the bottom of the window. <laughs> thank you so much. We tried and thanks to everybody for tuning yes, in. Yes, that was wonderful. We tried to do a good... I see all the claps <laughs> up and down the... Uh, <laughs> we, the, uh, someone's someone's raised their hand. I think you're trying to clap, but maybe you're asking a question. But we do try and keep these just to an hour so that our speakers know that they don't 
they haven't made an open-ended commitment that they can go. Thanks to Illuminate and Learn Central for supporting this fun effort. Uh, I've posted up on the whiteboard the upcoming interviews. Thanks again to David Perkins for making learning whole and for a really fun discussion. Most appreciated. Thank you all. Take care now. Thank you so much. Okay, thanks folks. That was really fun. The book is Making Learning Whole. I highly recommend it. Um, my copy is now heavily dog-eared and written in. Uh, I think you'll enjoy it quite a bit. Uh, two nights from now, Kevin Kelly on what technology wants. So thanks for coming. I'm going to turn off the recording, and uh, we'll see you next time. Bye now.